Well, welcome to the Five Day Reading Plan podcast. I'm Lance Ward, and I'll be your host, leading us through the scriptures that we read this week. And hey, we're in week 36. We're on the cusp of football season, my favorite time of the year. So I just got to stay focused. I don't know about you, but this time of the year, I'm distracted by football. But let's keep reading. If you're like me, keep reading, though. Uh, you can, by the way, if you haven't seen this reading plan, you can find it in the description of this podcast, or you can also find it at 5daybiblereading.com. And if you listen regularly, don't forget to get on that podcast service you use. Jump on there and give us a quick rating. Well, we're in week 36, and we read this week 2 Chronicles 29 through 32, 2 Kings 18 through 20, Psalms 67 and 123, Isaiah 36 through 44, and 1 Corinthians 8 through 12. Well, we learned a lot in our Chronicles, Kings, and Isaiah reading this week about Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a really good king, one of the best overall. He's such a standout that his story, as I mentioned, is told in Kings, it's told in Chronicles, it's retold in Isaiah. Hezekiah, as we learned, was a reformer. He led God's people through a marvelous time of redemption and revival, beginning with a cleansing of the temple by the Levites, a cleansing of all that shouldn't have been there. Unlike the evil of his father, Hezekiah sought to begin a new generation in a new way where proper worship would be restored and the covenant of God would be kept by the people of God. In chapter 30, we even saw the Passover restored. And and I don't know if you noticed with me, but I noticed how the Lord allowed an exception on the timing of it simply because the priests were not properly prepared, nor did the people have time to gather. Even under the Old Testament law, you see here some flexibility from God when it came to matters of the heart, especially noted in chapter 30, verses 18 through 22. And just a side note, did you see hints of a future parable of Jesus in chapter 30, verses 10 through 11? Chapter 31 shows us what happens when true reform comes. The ungodly stuff is torn down and destroyed making room for a holy and pure pursuit of the Lord. There's a real internal lesson for us today, isn't there, just in that physical description of what happened. And one of the most tangible signs of the reality of this new reform was a heart-driven generosity in chapter 31, verses 4 through 10. And in this generosity, there were no discussions of how much do we have to give or what percentage do we have to give. The people were just thrilled to give and give and give some more. Sometimes I wonder if one of the most objective indicators of true revival is a renewed generosity. Maybe we sing with great fervency and take notes and sermons till the ink in our pens runs out, but fewer things in our lives are greater indicators of heart change than what we do with the resources we have, especially our money and our time. When we start to enjoy giving things away more than keeping them to ourselves, it is a sure sign that the grace of God is doing something in our hearts. Later, though, the account of Hezekiah takes a strange turn. Sennacherib threatens to invade and seeks to encourage Hezekiah to turn from his trust in this invisible God that no one can see. And you think, "Uh uh-oh, what's going on here? I have found myself confused by this turn of events uh, because it doesn't seem that Hezekiah did anything to deserve this. 
But knocking at his door suddenly is a powerful threat. But when I think about this story more and more, I think, you know, this is often our story if we've walked with Christ long enough, isn't it? We might have a growing faith, but even in those times where our faith is growing, times arise when that faith must be tested, when we need to know if it is truly God we are trusting or if we're just trusting in all the benefits he gives. In Hezekiah's case, any reader may naturally ask here, will Hezekiah's faith hold up? Will he lead the people through this trial with a steadfast trust in the invisible God, or will the obvious tangible power and threat of Sennacherib just be too much? Well, Hezekiah certainly has a good start, especially in his words to the people in chapter 32, verse 8, where he says, Sennacherib only has human strength, but we have the Lord our God. Interestingly, though, 2 Kings 18 and 19 presents a little bit more in this story, another part of it that is not featured in Chronicles. Hezekiah there seems to kind of give in for a while, and then then he prays, and then Isaiah needs to intervene and tell Hezekiah, don't be afraid. Speaking of which, did you notice how the words in Psalm 23 sort of reflected Hezekiah's humble dependence upon the Lord in 2 Kings 19.14, where he spreads out the letter in his own self before the Lord in humility? Well, after that, we see Isaiah deliver a message in response, and Sennacherib's days will now be numbered. Not only is Sennacherib defeated, but soon after he's assassinated by his own sons in 2 Kings 19. That verse we read in 1 Corinthians 10:12 echoes here, doesn't it? Whoever thinks he stands must be careful lest he falls. I don't know about you, but I keep seeing this theme in the kings, even when there are good ones. They seem to have these chinks in their armor, as even in some story, parts of Hezekiah's story, he does. And the bad kings, as mighty as they can be, are no match for even the slightest intervention of God. Anyone can fall or fail at any time. We will all have great days and great seasons in our walks with God, but there is an enemy just waiting to take us down. We must always be on the alert. Lest anyone should fall, he must take heed. As mentioned a couple of weeks ago, the book of Isaiah takes a turn, a good turn at chapter 40, which begins with the twice-repeated term, comfort. As I mentioned earlier, chapters 1 through 39 feel more like the Old Testament, but here we see a turn to the hope of redemption just as we do in the dawn of our New Testaments. And right off the bat, we see an allusion to the one we now know as John the Baptist. Chapter 40, verses 28 through 31 uh, 31 is a passage likely familiar to those who have walked with God for any length of time. When I read through these familiar verses this time, one point I came away with was this. It is a healthy exercise to contrast our smallness with God's greatness. If we want to feel better about our status, we need to take our eyes off of ourselves and turn them toward our everlasting Creator. We don't gain confidence and assurance by looking inward, but by looking upward to the one who strengthens the powerless who takes the ones who feel like they're going to faint and makes them soar on wings like eagles. In in these chapters, too, in the 40s, we also see a big emphasis on the Lord's claim to be the only God. We'll see this this week and next week. Often in ancient Israel and Judah, God's own people did not become so much atheistic on their worst days, but what we might call henotheistic. 
They saw Yahweh as the main god, but also paid lip service to lesser so-called deities. So a big emphasis in Isaiah chapters 40 through 50 is our God is the only God. He will not be shared. He will not give his glory to the other. Even if other gods, so-called gods, that is, are lesser gods, he will not be shared. Why worship a dead piece of wood, in other words, when you can have the living and active God as your shepherd and rescuer? It simply makes no sense, and that's what Isaiah will emphasize in this section. In the same sense, we may be prompted to ask ourselves in these sections if we are sharing parts of our heart with some form of idol when Christ wants all of us. So as you read through the 40s, the chapters in the 40s this week and next, be sure and mark the passages where the Lord emphasizes these points and mocks the senselessness of idol worship. Did you notice in Psalm 67 the emphasis on the entire world? The translation I'm reading from contains the terms nations and peoples eight times and ends with all the ends of the earth will fear God. This language takes us back to God's covenant with Abraham and also directs our eyes forward to the Great Commission. Go therefore into all the earth. In you, Abraham, will all the nations be blessed. In other words, the New Testament and what happens in the New Testament is not going to be a plan B for God's story. It's not as if God got mixed up and had to think of something new. God's plan all along has been that his word and his glory go worldwide, that every tongue and tribe and nation will come to know him and worship him. Paul has an important lesson for us today in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 concerning especially the freedom we have in the gospel. If I were to summarize his argument in 8 and 9 and even in parts of 10, I might say it this way. As far as gospel freedom goes, the question is not, what are my rights, but how can I love? No one is to seek his own good, he writes in chapter 10, verse 24, but the good of the other person. That's what love looks like, putting others first, considering where they are and what our actions may reflect, especially to those younger in the faith. Speaking of that, I have sometimes heard Paul's example of becoming all things to all people as almost a license to participate in worldly things. Seems, though, through his words in 9, 19 through 27, that Paul was not a chameleon, per se, in adapting to his surroundings. He did not blend into the crowd as much as he simply did whatever it took to win others to the gospel. His becoming all things to all people, in other words, was not an expression of compromise or indulgence but self-denial. Paul's adaptation to his surroundings was not about comfort as much as it was about strategy. He did whatever was necessary as long as it did not compromise righteousness or integrity to see to it that every kind of person in every kind of situation had an opportunity to hear the good news. In chapter 10, 1 through 13, Paul shows us the value of the Old Testament in New Testament days. It is still relevant because it contains powerful lessons and examples so that we will not repeat the same mistakes that our forefathers did. One thing you are probably getting out of this Bible reading plan is that two things never change, the ways of God and the hearts of people. We may not live under the old covenant, and we have so much more knowledge and technology and good news than the ancients, but the human heart can still go astray. Temptations remain. The threats are still there. 
but God always provides a way of escape. If you've never done further study on the way the Corinthians were observing the Lord's Supper, as Paul addresses in chapter 11, verses 17 through 34, this would be a really productive endeavor, especially when we consider what it means to observe the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner or unworthily. It is closely related to what Paul has been discussing in the context regarding how we model our Christian lives to others. Some Corinthians in that context were behaving selfishly and tarnishing a part of body life that was so important. Paul was seeking to correct this. Finally, one thing that different denominations may have different views of is what we might call church membership. If nothing else, 1 Corinthians 12 shows us what we might call a biblical idea of membership is, but it has nothing to do with signing a form or getting your name on a roll. It's not about being a part of the club nor uh, some kind of rank in some kind of class system. It's really about having the view of our places and roles as members of Christ's body. We might say today that we are all body parts or body members, where each part or member is intended to function as God has purposed. Maybe it even helps to look at it this way. The church is not so much an organization as it is an organism. One fact you can't escape in this chapter, no one who calls himself or herself a Christian is meant to stand on the sidelines. If God's Spirit lives in you, then he intends for you to be a living and operative body part or member of this organism designed by God that we would be interdependent on one another. So are you aware of how God wants you to function in his body? Do you know how he has gifted you? Are you using those gifts? Are you functioning as the body part or member he has called you to be? My prayer for you this week is that you will function, that we all will function well in this body of Christ, that all the other members will be encouraged and built up as we eagerly together wait for the return of Christ. So this week, focus on that, especially as we move into the weekend and we we head towards Sunday worship. When you walk in that church building on Sunday, you might ask yourself, how can I be a good body part, a body member today in this organism? Well, next week we will finish 1 Corinthians. We'll start in 2 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians 13 through 16, 2 Corinthians 1. And in the Old Testament, we'll read Isaiah 45 through 63. We'll almost finish Isaiah. And then Psalms 69, 70, and 128. Look forward to you joining me next week and hope it's a great week for you. We'll see you then. Thanks for joining the 5-Day Reading Plan Podcast. (music) 